This is Plain Spoken, and I'm Jeffrey Rickman. I took a couple weeks off because I needed to, and now I'm back, and uh, I have a number of things to talk about today that I think are helpful. Uh, this is a show that I started about a month ago, a little bit more than um, just thinking that uh, there are a lot of people talking, but very few people representing the concerns of small uh, rural churches, and um, a lot of people just feel like they're at the the whims and mercies of a lot of bigger powers that they don't understand. Um, I I just think it's good to talk through things so that we understand, with, especially within the United Methodist Church, the the different powers that are at play above us and around us. Um, so it's my hope that as people watch this show and consider these topics, consider uh, the guests that I'll turn to here in a bit, uh, that that you would be encouraged, that you would feel informed about these topics and that you would feel equipped to more faithfully participate in the connectional nature of the United Methodist Church. So um, I hope this is a blessing to you. I always begin with a Wesleyan reflection, and so today we are uh, picking up on John Wesley's uh, sermon, The Good Steward. And in this, he talks about the final judgment, and we live in an era where a lot of people talk about the judgment metaphorically or don't talk about it at all because it makes them uncomfortable. John Wesley talked about the final judgment quite a bit in this particular sermon. I'm not going to read the fullness of what he says, but I just wanted to give you a taste of how seriously he took this final judgment. So this is in his uh, third Roman numeral, point two. The time then when we are to give this account is when the great white throne comes down from heaven. And he that sitteth thereon, from whose face the heavens and the earth flee away, and there is found no place for them, it is then the dead, small, and great will stand before God, and the books will be opened, the book of Scripture to them who, are, who were entrusted therewith, the book of conscience to all mankind, the book of remembrance likewise, to use another scriptural expression, which had been writing from the foundation of the world, will then be laid open to the view of all the children of men, before all these, even the whole human race, before the devil and his angels, before an innumerable company of holy angels, and before God, the judge of all, thou wilt appear without any shelter or covering, without any possibility of disguise to give a particular account of the manner wherein thou hast employed all thy Lord's goods. So he goes from there on, uh, talking about the different goods that God has given you, and he'll examine you for each of them. How didst thou employ thy soul, thy understanding, uh, thy memory, they're in italics here, thy will, thy affections, thy thoughts, um, thy body, uh, your tongue, um, your sight, your knowledge, your hearing. He goes through a long list... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end the quotes there, but I, it seems to me that we would do well to meditate upon those things that the Scripture suggests and our, our tradition uh, focuses on in its original parts. There was a, a huge concern for how it is that we will face the final judgment. And indeed, to be a Methodist in the beginning, you didn't have to have any doctrinal position. You had to, well, have one, a desire to flee from the wrath to come. And if that doesn't suggest final judgment, I don't know what does. So... Good Wesleyans, in, in the vein that I follow, in, in, in my opinion, view their participation in their local church and their denomination in the world in light of the fact that they are going to be judged according to their, their, their thoughts, their deeds, their actions, 
with respect to these things, and that on that day of judgment, there will be nothing hidden. There is nothing hidden that is not going to be made known. There is nothing concealed that will not be revealed. And so uh, we do our best to live in the light now so that on the day of judgment, we're not scandalized whenever um, what we've done in the darkness said behind closed doors. Uh, we don't want to be scandalized and embarrassed by that. We don't want to be judged by that. So um, that'll be the end of my reflection, and now I just want to introduce my guest. This is Brian Mangan. You pronounce it Mangan, right? Yes, Mangan. Yeah, I don't know that I'd have ever heard it said out loud. Brian and I, we travel in the same circles. We probably hold a lot of beliefs in common, and we surely don't in some areas, as is natural. But I've known that Brian is a, a friend uh, in faith for some time, and so he was one of the people that I naturally turned to whenever I thought of having on this show. So, Brian, thanks for joining me. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for changing up your schedule a little bit to fit mine. Yeah, well, uh, uh, I, I just think it's a, a great joy to sit down with other people and learn from them. I don't imagine that I have the fullness of the knowledge that I need pertaining to to any given subject, and you have a body of knowledge and experience to draw on that I don't. So um, uh, you came ready. I, I, I don't always do my best to let my guests know what I'm going to be talking about. I let him know about five of the six things I'm hoping to talk about, and I gave him and me, myself a pep talk before this. We're going to try and keep it to eight minutes a, a pop on each topic. Um, so with that said, you know, forgive us if we go longer. But the very first topic I wanted to talk about was um, the United Methodist um, set up on abortion. And so the very first thing that, that called my attention to this was an email that got sent out um, from general, the General Board of Church and Society. So I'm going to maximize it on my screen here. And it's a pretty short document. And I blanked out who it got sent to. I'm not on their mailing list. And uh, I've already talked enough. So Brian, why don't you read, um, yeah, starting there, the Supreme Court. So it says the Supreme Court is back in session today, which underscores the challenges we face as a result of the reproductive rights rollback made in June. Women across the United States are now being forced to give birth, many without access to adequate health care due to the lack of Medicaid expansion. Among industrialized nations, the U.S. has the highest rate of people dying of pregnancy-related complications. Black women are disproportionately affected as they are three to four times more likely to die in childbirth than white women. These facilities are largely preventable with access to affordable quality and comprehensive health care. Will you join our efforts with a donation today to support our work? With your help, Church and Society has been advocating to expand access to affordable and equitable care by closing the Medicaid coverage gap. By partnering with ecumenical and interfaith partners and calling United Methodists to action, we have sent letters to Congress, met with senators and representatives, written articles for national publication, and helped organize press conferences to demand justice for child bearers without insurance or access to affordable coverage. Uh, we lament for the two million people who remain without access to adequate health care in this nation. We lament for the mothers who have put their lives on the line to bring forth life in spaces that do not prioritize their survival. Okay, well, that, yeah. I think that closes it out there. It's just a final yeah. plea for uh, giving there. Now, the reason that I brought this up is I, I wondered how it struck you. You're familiar with the denominational stance on abortion mm -hmm. and uh, the different social stances that we've taken. My understanding is that the general council uh, conference that meets every four years for our denomination, they set the priorities for the GBCS and all of our general boards. Um, I didn't recall 
this particular concern being something that we've commissioned them to do? No, but uh, it's definitely something that uh, they have been advocating um, for, for a while. Um, you know, I've been in the United Methodist, I mean, I've been a United Methodist pastor for, for 31 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can remember um, probably 10 or 15 years ago, um, somewhere in there, that I went to look on their on the General Board of Church and Society's website, uh, and all I found were were positions and um, lobbying for abortion, and not one uh, statement, not one support for adoption. And uh, and I think that's what I went on the website originally for, if I remember right, was looking for, you know, uh, what what were the adoption resources we have? What, what were we doing as a church um, to, to promote that and support adoptive families? And Surely uh, there is some statement that our denominations <laughs> made on adoption. There is. It's, it's right after the statement on abortion in our in Within our social the social principles? principles? Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, go ahead and would you yeah. mind sharing that? Because sure. I know you came prepared for that. <laughs> yeah. So, so go ahead and read the, the, the statement on abortion, mm -hmm. and we'll pause for okay. a second, and then the statement on adoption. Yeah, um, I'm just going to read the first three paragraphs because the one on abortion is, is quite detailed. Uh, once it gets past the, the first three paragraphs, it goes into different things that scenarios, uh, you know, different scenarios. Okay, but uh, it's it's paragraph or it's K in our social principles, paragraph 161. Of course, we're still using the 2016 Book of Discipline. We won't, you know. Okay, <laughs> but uh, it says. Abortion, the beginning of life and the ending of life, are the God-given boundaries of human existence. While individuals have always had some degree of control over when they would die, they now have the awesome power to determine when and even whether new individuals will be born. Our belief in the sanctity of unborn human life makes us reluctant to approve abortion. But we are equally bound to respect the sacredness of life and well-being of the mother and the unborn child. We recognize tragic conflicts of life with life that may justify abortion, and in such cases we support the legal option of abortion under proper medical procedures by certified medical providers. We support parental, guardian, and other responsible adult notification and consent before abortions can be performed on girls who have not yet reached age of legal adulthood. We cannot affirm abortion as an acceptable means of birth control, and we unconditionally reject it as a means of gender selection or eugenics. And, uh, you know, <clears throat> what I see uh, in that uh, email um, and what I've you know, seen from past lobbying from the General Board of Church and Society is um, um, how they define, you know, the statement here I think that's important is that we recognize tragic conflicts of life with life that may justify abortion. Um, you know, and but what do we mean by life? And what, what do we mean by tragic conflicts of life versus life? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I've, you know, I kind of take the approach towards abortion of maybe like just war theory, you know, and just war theory has these seven principles that uh, say, yes, taking of life, human life is, is a tragic thing, but they, here are seven principles mm -hmm. at which it might be justifiable. Mm. And, you know, and... We, we, we all have that belief or uh, some kind of belief that says, you know, if somebody is trying to take your life, then you have a justifiable reaction to maybe take theirs before they take yours. Mm. 
And so, so I can agree to, to the point about this conflict of life uh, versus life. But I think where, where we get into differences <laughs> is what do we mean by uh, a conflict of life? And Yeah, and, one of the articles mm-hmm. I sent out for consideration yeah. was this a commentary mm-hmm. by uh, Holly. Uh, I don't know if that last name is pronounced Fugate. But I found this, it's as though she actually just read the social principles mm-hmm. comments that you just did. Yeah. And that she came out with a, a statement where she rejoices in the Dobbs decision. Mm-hmm. So that statement that we just read from GBCS yeah. calls it a, a, a removing of reproductive rights. Here, yeah. she, she sees yeah. this in a, a more nuanced light where uh, the Dobbs decision revoked a constitutional right to kill sacred human life, yeah. which our social principles yeah. affirm that all unborn life is, mm-hmm. is sacred. But then she acknowledges there are such things like ectopic pre- pregnancies mm-hmm. where the, the mother's if that pregnancy comes anywhere close to term, mm-hmm. that mother will not survive, in which case um, the conservatives I follow say there, there really isn't any scenario where you have to kill unborn life, mm-hmm. but you can prematurely deliver uh, unborn life and, and let nature take its course, which is, is much more humane in my eyes. But I, I think what you were building up to was saying there are a number of women who say my life will virtually end if you make me have this baby. You know, my life as I know it will be over, and you cannot make me take this baby to term. Well, and, and I think my job it, will be yeah, over. My relations yeah, well, will be disrupted. It, it, and what I've heard is it's um, a diminishing of the flourishing of life. That any anything that diminishes life from flourishing, and mm. by that they would mean you know get in the way of, of a job, get in the way of of, of whatever, mm-hmm. then then that is the conflict there. And I know in 2012 at General Conference, there was a, um, uh, it's not, we don't call them bills, but that's, you know, there yeah. was legislation that didn't make it out of committee that wanted to put the word physical here, physical life. Oh, really? And, I didn't and, hear that. Yeah. And and um, there was a, a hand vote done in committee. And the my my understanding was that this hand vote was, was fairly close, but the chair of the committee uh, didn't call for a, uh, an actual vote, just went by the show of hands, and, and, and based on their determination of the show of hands, they, they felt that it didn't that, have enough support. It didn't yeah. have enough support, and it didn't make it out of committee. Well, and I but, think something that happened in 2016 mm. was that um, GBCS had formally affiliated with uh, RCRC, Re- Re- Reproductive Choice, was one of the yeah. Religious Commission on Reproductive Choice, yeah. which uh, advocated for abortion. Mm up to the moment of delivery. And the denomination as a whole said, no, cut them off. And then GBCS through a hissy fit issued a public statement saying this was unjust for, and then we also made a statement saying, you know what, GBCS, if you wanna talk about church and society, talk about the persecuted church, talk about Christians being persecuted. And they haven't said anything about it to my knowledge Mm -hmm. since we commissioned them to do that. And then whenever the uh, Dobbs decision came out, something we hadn't pointed attention to yet was they made a response, an official statement against the Supreme Court for making Mm -hmm. that decision, which is a decidedly far left-leaning position. And then um, a a resource you pointed me to was uh, Reverend Dwayne Anders wrote a, a, he took a posture of like a reasonable middle place where uh, look at we we value the the life of the unborn and the life of the mother, but in the end, he he seems, yeah. in my opinion, to come it's, down again, entirely it, on it, that. And it comes down to that: anything that would seem as a diminishing of the status of of 
the mother is 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 um, is a diminishing of life, and mm-hmm. the, the, and that just that's the conflict of life versus life that justifies abortion. But you know what really bothers me about the the email that that I read is that it clearly does want to equate um, abortion with with birth control, mm-hmm. you know, and and that in our statement in the social principle again, uh, you know, says we find it unacceptable as a means of, of birth control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that one of the, the conservative position is, is decidedly, this is a human life. Mm-hmm. Uh, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. You know, there is no uncertainty. This is a human life. Mm-hmm. And um, also a, an approach to freedom where a, a liberal approach to freedom is I should not be constrained by anything. And so this baby will constrain me. It will limit my possibilities in life. A conservative approach says life is constraint, and there's freedom in navigating that constraint. But there is humans become very ugly creatures when we try to remove all boundaries, all constraints in our lives. Well, and that brings me to to the place that I I I, I don't know. It's 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 a it's an itch that I have a hard time scratching. And that is how our society has, uh, on a whole, viewed this choice as, as either the mother has to abort the child mm-hmm. or raise the child. Uh-huh. And we have, we have, we do not talk about adoption. I mean, right. and, and I, I, this, and I remember this was, was, this is the reason why I went to look for adoption now resources. Mm-hmm. I was, at the time, I was uh, volunteering some time at a local pregnancy crisis center. Really? And, 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 um, you know, and they were, you know, they'd show me their materials and what they do to convince uh, the mother about, you know, not having an abortion. Right. They had their own um, um, sonogram. Have you seen that we went and did a tour of an abortion, or a a (laughs) crisis pregnancy pregnancy center in Owasso? Well, that was the one I was volunteering at. Is yes. it really? Oh my goodness! Yeah. Okay, yeah. so we went and did yeah. a tour yeah. there. It's really good. Yeah. So but, I want to come back and but, talk but what, about. Go what, ahead. What I was surprised by yeah. it though is I asked them about. So what do you? When do you bring up adoption, or do you talk about adoption? And I was told they don't talk about adoption. It's either really abortion or or raising the child yourself. And 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 I was surprised that adoption right. wasn't even something that was was mentioned because it seems right. to me that that seems to be a yeah if, if this. Pregnancy is going to be is is a, a diminishing of, of the welfare of the mother mm-hmm. in terms of, of, of economic or, or social status or something along those lines. Um, wouldn't adoption be a, a, right. a better place to go? You know, I mean, I, and I'm, so I know that anybody some, watching this knows, yeah. Brian actually did adopt a child. So yeah. in the interview yeah. portion of this, that's going to be part two. If you want to hear Brian's story yeah. and how he he walked through this. Yeah. Go ahead and watch that. So what, that's when we'll read yeah, the social yeah. principles on adoption mm-hmm. as well. So anything else to be said about abortion before we move on? Oh, probably. probably. There's a lot to be said. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I should probably stop while I'm ahead, right? <laughs> well, um, let's, let's move on to the next topic because I've kind of made it a, a pet project of mine to understand uh, the African context in the United Methodist mm-hmm. Church, and I'm very far from being an expert mm-hmm. on all this. I've, I've had two interviews so far hoping to do several dozen. I'm hoping to, to put them out uh, over time for other people to, to learn from and see. But it's people over here have known it's complicated over there mm-hmm. for a while. Uh, a few weeks ago, there was a statement put out by some African bishops saying um, the Africa Initiative, 
the Wesleyan Covenant Association and the Global Methodist Church are responsible for trying to split the church in Africa. They are now no longer welcome to be active in these uh, regions in Africa. Last I checked, there are three central conferences in Africa uh, divided under uh, at least 13 bishops. I was looking at this earlier today, and I'd forgotten. I've, I've forgotten already. Yeah, but have, then the Africa far more bishops and fewer and, and fewer church members right. in the United States than we yes. do in Africa. I will say that. So there are more <laughs> African United Methodists yeah. than there are American mm -hmm. United Methodists. Mm -hmm. However, yeah. um, that's not necessarily reflected. The Africa Initiative came back with a response saying, it's not our intent to divide the church. We're just trying to circulate information and let churches mm -hmm. uh, be informed. And so I've been trying to, to talk with different people in Africa to say, okay, how do you see us, and then how do you see yourselves in, in the whole denominational setup? And, and it's way too broad for an eight-minute segment right yeah. here. But I did want to focus on this article by David W. Scott, and he writes for UM News from time to time. That's him right there. Yeah. I've noticed him having a very nuanced and, and unbiased perspective, which is nice. Um, and he's been writing on, the, in particular... The, what it seems to me, the Nigerian perspective seems outsized in comparison. And it's not that we never hear anything, but the conflicts in Nigeria sure take center stage. And a lot of the key players are in Nigeria. So another group, Africa Voices of Unity, the main guy that I've been talking to there is uh, Nigerian. And you would think, okay, the ones against the Africa Initiative. Africa Initiative is very conservative, so Africa Voices of Unity must be very liberal, right? No, <laughs> they're both... Very conservative, uh, not just with human sexuality, but biblical interpretation. Um, but there's a genuine question on their part of do we move forward by working well with the evangelicals splitting off? That would be Africa Initiative, WCA, GMC. Or do we do better to cooperate with the, the institution, which will then pass something like a Christmas covenant and let them have regional autonomy? So, so this, this article by Mr. Scott here, he's probably a doctor, he talked about this gathering in Nairobi in May where the Africa Initiative um, dealt with some of these tensions, but the one I really wanted to focus on was they really want to see some more bishops put in place over there. Uh, they're, they're, they're raising this concern that I think the Africa Voices of Unity would as well. I wanted to share this quote from... Um, uh, I think is it is it that um, like us their bishops are, are you know because the general conference hasn't met they haven't elected bishops to you know so they have retiring bishops and they have you know bishops that are going past retirement like we've had well and they have one they have yeah. one who died who yeah. who yeah. Uh, orchestrated the protocol but even so yeah, yeah what happened in the U S was we weren't supposed mm -hmm. to be able to bring in new bishops until general conference and the yeah. judicial council got involved and said oh no 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 we can do no. it here. But they didn't they do, do that for, for the, the central, central conferences. conferences. Yeah, which I, I agree. That seems a little, little. That's weird. Yeah. So here's the but, things that Ande is the Africa Voices of Unity person that I've been talking to. He he lifts up four things that are representative of. Um, I don't think he says racism. I I don't I don't know that he even says neocolonialism. Um, I should have read this before. But there are four things. One, what is the total membership of uh, UMs in the Western jurisdiction, and how many bishops? Do they have compared to Africa as a whole? Uh, is there equality in the way bishops are distributed in the United Methodist Church? So we already talked about that one too. Yeah. Look at the boards and agencies we have. 
How many Africans serve in the boards or work in those agencies? Is there equality in that distribution? And the answer is no. Three, look at the United Methodist universities and colleges. How many do we have in Africa compared with America? I think there's actually, isn't Gambaranga where Jerry Kula is? And I want to say there's a third too. But even so, look how many are in the U.S. 13 in the U.S. Um, And that's just the official ones. We have money involved in a lot more. And then four, when the WCA tells the UMC members to stop paying apportionments, who do you think that will affect? Think about the schools, hospitals, other, um, I don't know what he said there, uh, people in Africa that depend on that apportionment. Is that what you call equality? I could go on and on. And I wish he would. You know, I think it would be really helpful uh, to be thinking about that. But when we imagine, um, I think right-leaning people like to imagine we're on the side of the Africans. We agree. We I, share in that theology. I think that next paragraph, though, is, is, is the most telling and the most accurate. Well, I've read enough. Go ahead and say it. Says, many people in America think Africa is one country. Such myopic thinking translates to how they relate with Africans. We have been treated as less human, even by the church. I went to I went to Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington D.C., and I can recall encounters in America where, where, as a black person, I was treated differently. We see how our black siblings in Africa are being treated by both the far right and the far left. Where is equality in all these things? Yeah, yeah. And and you know, um, I I'm not as informed as I would like to be. In, in Africa, mm-hmm. on Africa, but yeah, we forget that it's a continent with multiple countries, uh, not 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 a nation on its own, and and each country has its own uh, thinking, and, and and we forget also that you know the colonial powers did set up a lot of the boundaries of these countries, and they did so without regard to what were already established tribal territories, and so in some pa- cases, you know, you you had tribal, you know. You had tribes that were divided among mm-hmm. different territories and, and put into different countries. And, you know, that was the origin of the Rwanda genocide in the 90s was, right. was just tribal conflicts and, and the tribalism that's, you know, still kind of undermines a lot of the, of the thinking in society there. But, but, you know, and I think in terms of, you know, they're, they're, should they go, should they remain United Methodist, should they go, Global methods should they do their own thing? Mm-hmm. I mean, a lot of that also comes down to national laws, and do they does do they are they in a country that has to recognize officially the the churches that operate in that country? And so if you if you change your denomination, now you're no longer a legal church. Oh, you know, you see yeah. that that can be a factor, hmm. um, and and I think it, it is a matter of 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 trust. You know, they've, you know, and, and lack of trust. But, yeah, I mean, parts of the Christmas covenant I actually can support because, I mean, let's face it, General Conference is very uh, uh, United States uh, focused. Right, and the Christmas and, covenant gives regional autonomy yeah. to different parts of the United I mean, Methodist Church where they can have yeah. different doctrines to yeah. one degree or I mean, another. Let's just go back to our last topic with the General Board of Church and Society. Yeah. They're advocating um, a, a on something that is only affecting, you know, the United States and, and not speaking and not advocating. I mean, it, they're, yeah. they would say it affects yeah. other yeah. parts of the world, but even so, but, but I mean, with that, that and the gender was, ideology, yeah. Yeah. That, these are concerns that are very uh, yeah. outsized in, in the Western culture. Yeah. And then in Africa, yeah. one gentleman I was talking with yesterday, he said, look, it's a much bigger, con- 
if you want to talk about sexual ethics, we want to talk about polygamy here. Yeah. We need to figure that out. Yeah. If you want to talk about threats to quality of life, we yeah. want to talk about religious persecution here. Um, you know, we have we have dire poverty issues that we're stilling, still yeah. dealing with. You're talking about getting people on government health care over in North America. We're just talking about keeping people alive over yeah. here. You're yeah. talking about how different ethnicities um, die at slightly higher rates. Mm -hmm. Well, they say three to four times. When you look at that actual data, actual numbers, uh, it, it's not the genocide that you might be led to believe. It's not that we should be indifferent about it, but we should be interested in all those other causal factors yeah. that are involved in maternal mortality rates, mm -hmm. you know, and how they correspond with mm -hmm. culture and, and race. But we've already moved on since that yeah. topic. Yeah. When we're talking about African concerns, they're not the same as Western concerns. Yeah. And so do we split off and allow people to focus on their own concerns, or do we seek the same mind that was in Christ Jesus? Yeah, and that's my, my point was just trying to be is that a general agency of the church is focused on a topic for the United States and not for the general church. Right, yeah. right. And that, and, that, and that seems to be, in, you know, and that, that's our inherent structure from the beginning that we're, we're focused on the United States, mm -hmm. and and we we do tend to neglect not just Africa, but Europe, Europe and the Philippines, the other parts of the the United Methodist Church. And yeah. Although you know, I, I would like to see us have have more of a one mind approach that 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 um, you know an equality approach where we're all all parts of the world or somehow yeah how do we take I, how do we yeah. imagine that we're following the bible yeah. if we allow for regional and ethnic separation within the church mm -hmm. that just seems to be yeah. such a clear and it's not like we're a pure and perfect church yeah. right no. now but it seems to be moving in the yeah. the wrong direction if we allow for that regional separation but it's for the sake of short-term political convenience yeah and just get in our way and that's just short-sighted yeah. and selfish and it uh, but i mean it, to find africans also being sympathetic with it just is a statement on how yeah. uh, distasteful we have become. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. this this gentleman I spoke with yesterday, I said, is neocolonialism a, a real thing happening over there? Is that a concern? And he said, not really. You know, if you want to talk about colonialism, let's talk about rape and gunpowder. Yeah. And uh, But if you're talking about just hostile ideology, yeah. look at ideology that is not already in Africa that is being brought in from mm -hmm. the West. And mm -hmm. then he pointed me to this article that I've, I've got on my screen here. Yeah. Bishop dedicates reconciling church in Kenya. For many people, this is indicative of uh, neo-colonialism. One guy called, well, I'm not going to say what he called it, but <laughs> but he, this is evidence of Western intervention in African culture. Yeah. But but right-leaning caucus groups, which got all the attention from the bishops, mm -hmm. if they're facilitating a conversation on separating, are is that neo-colonialism or uh, something else. And so I, I don't know what else. I, I will have an informed yeah. position on this maybe next week, <laughs> but I doubt it. Um, let's move on to the next topic. Um, it's from this article that I saw being posted on, um, oh, the United Methodist Clergy page. And it's not a United Methodist uh, particular uh, article. It's on Patheos, but um, that's religious topics. Pastors are quiet quitting the church, and I'm ashamed to say I'd heard quiet quitting referred to before, but I didn't really know exactly what it was, and um, I was disturbed by the conversation that followed. Did you see this on Facebook? Did you see um, me lock? I locked horns with one yeah, guy who oh, said, no. quiet quitting is just doing your job, and then when you go above and beyond yeah. for your job, you're just making it harder for any other pastors that, that are not as 
uh, privileged as you to be able to do that. You know, some of us, we really are mm-hmm. hard up for money and we need to do what, what I would call the bare minimum. They say, we just need to do what's required in our job and anything beyond that is volunteering. It's not our job. No, I didn't. I, I had read the, the article even before you sent it to me and I had heard of the great resignation and the quiet yeah. quitting in, in, in the corporate world. And, uh, and I would say that there are several things, you know, again, I've been a pastor for 31 years in the United mm-hmm. Methodist Church, and there were several things in this article that, I mean, I could resonate with in my own ministry at times. Let me give um, this definition yeah. just right here. It's on the screen. Quiet quitting is when you keep your job, but you don't do anything more than is expected of you. So what did you identify with in this this article? Well, I mean, the, just that uh, um, the idea that you, you go out there, I mean, you know, being a pastor, we also have a call, mm-hmm. and and with a call often comes a passion. Sure. And 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 so you're out there, and and you're trying to bring that to to the church that you're serving, and 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 you just you know, at best you just get uh, blank faces back at you, and and uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to say how recently, maybe just maybe within a few months, <laughs> uh, I was like, why am I even doing this? Because this isn't. They don't seem like this is what they want. You know, and and yeah, I think I think I, I don't. Uh, if you if you've been a pastor for any length of time and you haven't thought that, uh, I, I, I you're very blessed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. <laughs> well, so I would consider myself. There have been there have been many years. I've been in ministry for almost eleven years yeah. now, well, and there have been years where people's eyes are glazed over. And I'm yeah. just like, what are we doing here? Mm-hmm. But I've been here. This is the longest appointment I've ever had, and it's like, uh, <coughs> excuse me. Um, it's, it's, they're not indifferent anymore. It's, yeah. they're not burning on fire yeah. yet, yeah. but they're, uh, it's, we're coalescing is yeah. the word I would use. And that's been exciting and comforting to me. I, at one point did not think much of long-term appointments at all. And now having seen the benefit of building, helping build a group yeah. identity, yeah. I see that. Oh, it, it, it takes, it takes a minimum of, of, of three, maybe four years to just right. find to find out and learn about the congregation and, you know, that, that first year of ministry and a new appointment is, I, I mean, it, it's, I don't want to say wasted, mm-hmm. but until you've gone through a full year with, with the church, I mean, there are all kinds of hidden surprises and things right. that you won't know about until you, until you experience it. I mean, that's why I said, you know, until you've been with that church for a full mm-hmm. cycle, those kind of, there are those kind of surprises, those well, traditions. Well, the thing this and, author, is, he know? focused on some, so the first one is pastors are notoriously underpaid. Two churches discourage pastors from taking vacation time. Well, I, I will say I think sometimes pastors discourage themselves too. But you know, three constant criticism is another reason. Uh, four pastors quiet quit when their congregations don't give them the breathing space yeah. they need to grow. Yeah. Those are the four main areas. Yeah. I can so for me, I can affirm that some pastors are underpaid. Yeah, yeah. I can affirm that some pastors are discouraged from taking vacation time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've I've been in settings where I was criticized too much and when I didn't have space to grow. I, mm-hmm. But what I, what I believe is that that's on me. Yeah. I need to assert, this is what I need. Church, you need to make room for it. And if the church is not willing, then I need to find a new church. But it's not... Everybody needs to give me space. It's more like this is a dysfunctional yeah. situation that we need to augment together. But the quiet quitting thing seems so passive aggressive to me. It is. And um, 
not and, adult. And, and trust me, I, I've 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 followed the the pastor that has quite quit before, you know, and come into a church situation, and and you know the the that that affects the church, and you know we've we've all I don't know. I've I've been a part of very small churches and very associate pastor of a large church, you know. So so I've experienced the dynamic of of ministry through Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and and uh, you know there are those churches that you know they have just kind of gotten to that place where where all they really want is a chaplain who is going to you make them feel good on on Sunday morning and be there for their funeral. You know, and Mary Carrie and Barry. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and and there's plenty of pastors that I think are willing to to do that, unfortunately. But uh, you know, I'm I'm one that's been, um, you know, my my passion is is the kingdom of God and seeing you know seeing it done on earth as it is in heaven, uh, and and uh, I try to bring that you know uh, as I can in different ways, and you know, this last I'll, I mean. Let's face it. This last, uh, um, you know, I, I've been in the current appointment I'm in now for six years, and it seems like every time I get some momentum going, you know, get, uh, something's happened. You know, well, okay, I, I'm in the appointment for two years, and something called COVID hit. You know, and sure, and all momentum. We were starting to gain some momentum in that, and then now we lost it all. Now we're just kind of recovered from that. It's yeah. like starting the appointment all over again. Really, it sure. was coming back from COVID and all, and we're starting to find, you know. The changes, you know, what we thought were temporary changes are now permanent. It seems like, and we're but we've gotten used to it, and and now we're feeling like maybe some some momentum is coming up, and now you know, different conversations in the denomination are maybe affecting momentum again. <laughs> and so, well, when we're looking at general trends within the American church, not just yeah. the United Methodist Church, but I mean, the, the mainline church is declining faster than mm-hmm. a lot of traditions. Mm-hmm. The United Methodist Church yeah. has been in in free fall now for at least ten years, and it was in decline mm-hmm. consistently before that. The Lewis Center um, put out puts out an annual report on clergy age trends in the United Methodist yeah. Church, and um, I you can pull it up online for free. Um, it, it comes up with some just some highlights. Young elders are in decline to record low number. Um, there's some shifting from older to middle age elders, though that's interesting. Young deacons are increasing, but local pastor numbers decline, including young local pastors. Um, so it, it goes on to a lot more uh, factors in there, but the general story is, though the general church is declining, it would seem that the profession of clergy is declining even faster. I, I don't know actually which one is declining more, but you would think that churches would be yeah. closing and people would still be called to ministry, but really we're, we're yeah. struggling yeah. to get... Well, and I think what's missing in those statistics is, is, I don't remember what the number is, but the rate of persons who leave ministry after just being in it for five years. I mean, it's, it's, that's, that's pretty high as well. I mean, um, and, and, and I think there are a number of factors. I mean, you know, one, one factor that I think affects that is, I mean, being a pastor is a pretty lonely job because, um, you know, it's, it, it really is. I mean, in all the appointments I've served, there's only one appointment where my wife feels like um, she was accepted for her, herself and not as the wife of the pastor, mm-hmm. you know, where, where she felt like she was making genuine friends as, as friends and not, um, you know, 
we've had friends in every church, but you know, it's, it's still that dynamic of, well, you're the pastor's wife or you're the pastor and not just you're Brian, you're Gail, yeah. you know? And, 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 uh, you know, it wasn't a friendship, though, I guess, it felt like a friendship of equals, I guess, you know. Right. And, and well, we've been yeah. told as clergy to have a clinical relationship with our people. Mm-hmm. So how do you have genuine yeah. friendships in a clinical environment? And the answer yeah. is you don't. Yeah. You know, when we're looking at how impersonal and lonely mm-hmm. the, the pastoral profession is, yeah. I think that's something that clergy did to ourselves. Well, I don't think it's something that churches yeah. have done to us. I think it's something that, that this article, uh, this author of Quiet Quitting, he puts on to, but my comment on Facebook was, I grew up in the era when giving pastors space meant buying them a house across town, which a lot of churches did. I've it, had the parsonage across the street. Well, the I live too. right yeah, next yeah, to the yeah, church, yeah, yeah, and yeah, I yeah, love yeah. it because yeah. <laughs> there's, there's this decision pastors have to make of, is this going to be a profession for me or a life calling yeah. for me? And yeah. that's not the same thing. A profession is clinical. It's limited. Yeah. You, you put all these boundaries on... Uh, with with a life calling, you're vulnerable to these people, and you expect them mm-hmm. to be vulnerable mm-hmm. to you. And you can tell I'm I'm drawn to this one. Yeah. I don't care about all the professional yeah. stuff. Yeah. You know, I do it to to make my higher ups happier. Mm-hmm. But my wife needs real friends, yeah. and she has them here. She has a women's discipleship group where those ladies share. They do life together. I got a men's discipleship group does the same thing. I don't know how pastors do it without this. But there are some pastors. All they do mm-hmm. is programming, people moving. Yeah pew filling, uh, and they're all about that well, final action of send them out, get them doing something. There's something to be said for just mm-hmm. basking in God's glory together, uh, growing in discipleship together, and then letting flow mm-hmm. from that the things that we do communally. Yeah, yeah. But so many pastors, they want the good photo op, they want the good important mission, but they don't necessarily know, they don't even know necessarily how to just sit with their people, be with their people, share in life together, yeah. do life together. I just think those are two very different models of ministry. Yeah. And one is depressing for a re- like there are a lot of people who are depressed and it's like dude you're you're doing it in a yeah. pr- <laughs> way that's going to set you up to be depressed, you know. <laughs> so you need to augment instead of quiet quitting. Quiet quitting just feels like the most hateful thing to yeah. me. What happens if a pastor has something akin to a midlife crisis just going I thought I had the right boundaries here, but I'm miserable. So yeah. let's shake well, it up a little bit. Let's be more intimate, you know. Well, there, there, there are a lot of moral failures in ministry. I think because of that, there actually. But um, you know, you you reminded me what you were, when you were speaking. I was reminded of a quote um, that was from Fred Craddock, um, and uh, I can't remember the exact quote itself, but basically he was talking about. He was talking about seminary students mm-hmm. and what what is the difference between you know what what happened in seminary when when a when a student came in uh, full of fire full of passion for mm-hmm. God yeah and three years later I should date the quote it seems like it's four years now for seminary right for most people but three or four years later they come out and and that passion is gone and mm-hmm. and and the liberalism of the seminary usually gets the blame yeah for that but but Craddock said he he felt that these were the persons who substituted talking about God for talking with God. Okay. And 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 that there is that personal responsibility we have to our own discipleship, mm-hmm. to our own relationship with God. And if we don't make that a priority for ourselves, who will? Right. And 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 if we're not operating out of that priority, then I think you are more likely to run into those factors of, of quiet quitting. Because I mean to be honest, those times when I felt like, well maybe, yeah, I could 
relate to those. Those are also times when I wasn't taking care of, of my personal relationship mm. as, as as intentional, yeah. and that's been something that um, uh, I've been doing very well actually in the last four or five years. Right. You know, um, even through through COVID. I mean, but uh, one, of the, you, one, one of the best things I did <laughs> in 2017 was was get a spiritual director and meet with them. Oh, interesting. And and you know that just kind of helps keep that in the forefront. And then I try every six months to put myself at a conference that I know is going to feed feed my soul. Sure. Yeah. And 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 usually the church has realized that when I come back from one of those conferences the next Sunday, look out because it's going to you know I can't I can't contain the sermon anymore. <laughs> well, <laughs> clergy friends, if you're yeah. watching this yeah. and you are miserable in your job, <laughs> think about Brian's approach, which is. Going to conferences that'll pick you up every six months. Getting a spiritual director. Uh, let's let's move on. Let's talk about hurricane recovery. Every time there's a hurricane, every time there's a natural disaster, there's the. I was going to say obligatory, but I don't think it's obligatory. I think U, U, UM News genuinely rejoices in the work of uh, disaster recovery that our denomination does. I, I think. Oh. The United Methodist Committee on Relief is the yeah, best um, thing core. we do. I'm um, core. Well, and as as, <laughs> as our denomination has split apart yeah. more and more yeah. ideologically, the one thing we come together mm-hmm. on still is is mission. Yeah. And so UMCOR is is given top notch rankings by by everyone who watches who mm-hmm. does this mm-hmm. stuff. I sent you this John Stossel report he did yeah. on uh, hurricane recovery yeah. and and false information that gets promoted. One of which being that um, the federal government. Is, is not actually very effective in uh, disaster recovery. But nonprofits like UMCOR mm-hmm. do an excellent job. Well, um, I will say, you know, um, one of the things I felt the government did right in Katrina recovery, at least in the Alabama area, was UMCOR was designated as the, as the main agency. Right, when FEMA which, couldn't come through. Yeah. Through which the government and all other... You know, I we, we I sent mission teams. Uh, we went a couple times to Alabama. I've done work, mission work in in um, in Kansas, um, oh Greensburg, Kansas, with, mm-hmm. after the tornado. And yeah, I mean, I mean, if if you're waiting on on a federal bureaucracy or a state bureaucracy to come through, well, you're going to be waiting a while. It does seem, I mean, um, the uh, uh, oh the Baptist Relief Organization. You know, they're, yeah. they're I mean, they're usually there. 30 minutes before the storm hit, you know, it seems like, yeah. you know, yeah. and, 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 uh, you know, they're real good at the front end of getting there on the ground and, and UMCOR, I think where we, where we rain or I don't know, rain's the right word, but where we flourish, ex- flourish off. is, is, is in the long-term right. follow, follow through and, yeah. and the follow through and, yeah. and that, that we're not there for weeks or months. I mean, we're there for years at times to, to make sure that everything, you know, and, and uh, yeah, I mean that that uh, uh, that is one of the things on the and, and and the way it's funded, you know, it's not. Yeah, and I, know, I pulled up the know. page here for through mm-hmm. UMCOR. We have what's called advance giving, and yeah. and there's a different number for each advance yeah. purpose. But the number for uh, hurricane recovery is nine zero one six seven zero, according to the GBGM thing. And I just noticed even. The conservative liberal divide is resulting in in other answers. This is a, a mailing from yeah. the WCA, and of course the WCA is huge in Florida. Yeah. That's where 106 yeah. churches have individually filed suit against the bishop and the conference, and so they they point to the UMCOR advance here 901670. I think that's the exact same one, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. That's the thing. Yeah. 
but then they also allow you to give directly to uh, churches so that they can do their work as as well. Uh, the WCA Florida is doing that, and then uh, well, and and with the United Methodist Committee on Relief, I mean, hundred percent of those dollars are going to go right into that recovery. Their right. their administration is covered by. Our Other, by, by, yeah. Well, no, by special the one great hour sharing special offering. Is that that's yeah. okay? It yeah. didn't come out of they, our they, they do not have apportionment funding. Yeah, well, um, that's impressive, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and so it may be that they may be one of the most efficient general agencies of the church because of the way we fund them. Right. Yeah, <laughs> <You know? laughs> that's interesting. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Well, a hurricane recovery, I, I, I read this book a few years ago that rocked my world called um, When Helping Hurts. I don't know if you've ever heard of it, mm-hmm. but they talk about disaster relief being yeah. one of the ways in which we often um, come into an area and uh, with good intentions do more harm mm-hmm. than good. Mm-hmm. And there is a way to do um, disaster relief that Encore is actually part of the solution on, which is that long-term yeah. follow-through care. So that's something well, And, and I've about. read the book When Helping Hurts and yeah. have tried to Based my benevolence at, at the local church, based on some of those principles too, and, and I'm actually uh, uh, trained in, in a in a budget program that the same authors created. Oh, cool! Really? But for, for helping without way. hurting. Yeah. Or uh, um, uh, uh, um, I can't think of the name. I've, I've lost it. But uh, it's their financial Chalmers Center. Yeah, the Chalmers Center. Their financial training for low income. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't know you were training that. I haven't known yeah. another pastor, yeah. Methodist yeah. pastor, who did that. In fact, remember I told you I'd, I visited this church before. I actually mm-hmm. came up here for a reading group in the district where we were reading when helping hurts together. Oh, cool! <laughs> but, I didn't uh, know y'all did that. Yeah, that was that was you know when districts had names after cities and they're not regional names. <laughs> but well, this kind of ties ago. into the but, next one a little bit because it gets into the social yeah. justice thing a yeah. bit. Yeah. Uh, I guess it doesn't tie in super clearly, but. I don't know much about the Philippines mm-hmm. yet. I, I, it's, that's probably not going to be my next project. But there was an article that says church says clergy woman faces trumped up charges, and uh, I, I asked the uh, author to be friends on Facebook, and she hasn't accepted me yet. But I got questions about this yeah. because it's real interesting. the The pastor's name is Glofi Baluntong, and Filipinos forgive me for mispronouncing that, but that seems to be her her ministry is with indigenous population here. Um, I, I can't recall the name of the the group off the top of my head, mm-hmm. but um, the accusation that, well, it's the alle- allegation, accusation, the argument that this article makes is that she is not at all a threat to the state, but that the state has red-tagged her, uh, accusing her of the charge of murder, mm-hmm. um, yeah, the, the campaign of red tagging designed to silence her and other activists who support the rights of indigenous people and poor throughout the country. Now, I want to know more about this. The The particulars of the charge are not stated in yeah, this. Yeah, that's what I found missing, too. Like, yeah. You just had a series of yeah. statements from other clergy people, especially uh, taking—so it's kind of this intersectional justice yeah. type thing where it's concerned with indigenous people. That's an oppressed group. She's a woman. That's an oppressed group. And then to some degree— um, non-Catholic method or uh, Christian groups in the Philippines, or uh, mm-hmm. it doesn't really talk about that in here. But it, the story is kind of being there's this hegemonic authoritarian power, mm-hmm. which is the state, and then there's the United Methodist Church that's facing off against it. And this, I, the last thing I recall reading about the Filipino context was several years ago. The the 
primary leader of their government was going after drug dealers, just summarily killing them pretty much. And the United Methodist clergy were trying to protect them, and they were advocating for the rights of these drug dealers uh, not to be summarily killed. Um, now, with this, I, I was able to reach out to one Filipino clergy and just said, why is the government threatened by clergy advocating for indigenous people? Why is that so threatening that they would trump up false charges? So before I... I do any more analysis? Did you look at this? Did you have any responses to anything in this? You know, I I, uh, I know very little about the Philippine context. Um, I mean, the closest I have is is I had a professor in my doctorate of ministry, Luther O'Connor, who's from the Philippines, mm -hmm. and uh, and I always thought it was interesting that he had an Irish last name, uh, and and then I learned that my last name in in the in one of the Filipino languages is a word for good food so nice okay. <laughs> it's spelled the same as like yeah. even though it's an irish name so like you know he's he's the he's the filipino with the irish name and i'm the irishman with the filipino name you know? yeah but but uh but i i really don't know much about the context there i mean i know a little bit about um the, the philippines and the politics there and you know they've had even though it's been a quote-unquote democracy it's been more of a of a you know uh, they've had you know, dictatorship-like governments and and um, um, corruption in the past. I mean, uh, and and so um, yeah. I, I mean, I'd like to know the nature of these charges. I mean, is yeah. she directly involved, or is she being charged with murder because uh, a, a group that she might have been associated with was involved in terrorist acts that? That create that killed someone. I mean, you know. Well, so yeah, yeah, as, yeah, as, yeah. as I started asking, so usually, <laughs> even if they're trumped up charges, usually yeah. there's some kernel of truth yeah. in a lie. Yeah. You know, so not that the kernel of truth mm -hmm. would be that she is a murderer, but is she tied to any groups mm -hmm. that are uh, accused of like guerrilla yeah. yeah. military tactics? So I, I looked up this uh, U.S. Department of State report, the 21, 2021 report on international religious freedom, and it's particular to the Philippines. I did not read this whole thing. However, I read parts of it. Glofi, the, the pastor mentioned in this uh, previous article, is, is mentioned here. But there are crackdowns on all kinds of religious groups here. And if the reasons were listed, I didn't get to it. So I, I need to read more. But so in any context, there are global forces at work, there are spiritual forces at work, and then there are local forces at work. And we can't really speak to the local. You and I don't know the local. But we do have a history to draw on of authoritarian regimes and how they behave. Is there an authoritarian government in place there that doesn't like any competing authorities? Mm -hmm. It seems to be the case. I mean, they're yeah. not just targeting Methodists. Yeah. They're yeah. targeting Muslims as well. Yeah. Um, and then I, I looked up, um, I remembered that Mark Tooley mm -hmm. wrote this article on the, the World Council of Churches and their official connection to the KGB. Both the... Well, there's the World Council of Churches and the National Council of mm -hmm. Churches, and both were founded in the earlier half of the 20th century that were largely undergirded and supported by the mainline denominations. And they were both founded under the, the social gospel. Uh, Rauschenbusch of, of, was uh, yeah, the original yeah. social gospel. Of, he was of, a Baptist. Of the, the original liberalism, <laughs> not modern liberalism, but the original. So there's a question liberal, of how far removed liberalism. they are. Yeah. You know, so the IRD was started when it was it became known. He he makes reference to it at the beginning of this article that Marxist guerrilla groups were funded by the WCC, the World Council of Churches. 
Now, I tried to find an article that substantiates that, and I didn't find one. What I did find was this article on the NCC talking about their communist uh, foundation and leanings. It begins with uh, a quote from Rush Dooney, the beginning of true liberty is Jesus Christ, and therefore the first and last target of all subversion is biblical faith. Hence, it is that the church has been the first target of infiltration and subversion, and it is the most subverted institution in the United States today. So at the, the start of the 20th century, you have this global Marxist movement that was very serious, very well organized, and global in nature, as I already said, that, that was able to effectively infiltrate a number of institutions and effectively work for their overthrow. And even whenever the overt um, proletariat versus bourgeois framework fell apart in the West, mm -hmm. they, they came up with new ways in which to pit mm -hmm. people groups against one another. Yeah. So I can't help but wonder if, if there is strong Marxism within the Filipino context or if these indigenous groups have any way become enthralled to this because she's overtly a social justice warrior. Mm -hmm. These things overlap in the West. How much do they do in other contexts? Yeah. You can't have any of these assumptions going into it. So what I want to do as I read that starting article is I want to be on her side. You know, I hate authoritarian government. You know, I really do. But also, whenever I realize that this, this flag she's waving is, is a, a, a social justice left-leaning one, mm -hmm. what I wonder is, are we seeing, we've seen it already in dozens of contexts across the world, are we seeing authoritarianism versus Marxism? Um, and in that case, I don't care yeah. to support either side in this. I mean, and, and, and yeah, I need more information because, I mean, some basic tenets of the Christian faith can be found within communism, Marxism. You know, they, they take take a little bit of of the truth, if you will, and and build that we a need lot, to care for all people uh, equally. Yeah, all build people a, are equally a, made in a, God's a strong, image. powerful political lie around it. You know, sure. But uh, so so is she? She truly a Marxist, or is she just standing up for the, those commonalities? Yeah, right. Yeah, those commonalities between a Marxist and and the gospel. <laughs> in know? which case, yeah, you know, Reverend Balintong. Mm -hmm. I'm going to make a commitment to be in prayer for you. I yeah. sure hope that you really are just caring for the indigenous people and not at all guilty of, of what you're being charged of. But um, let's see, what was the name of this author? Um, Gladys Mengiduyos. Would you please do a follow-up article? We're very interested to know more details about this. We want to know how to pray for this, this uh, woman of God. All right, that, that covers all that we really have time to cover. So we were able to cover five things. I, I'll cover Christian nationalism next week, maybe. But um, anyway, I, I'm glad you joined us. I hope you learned from Brian. If you've enjoyed listening to him, I'd encourage you just to watch part two, where we're going to learn about him and his life and his ministry. And uh, we've already dipped our toes in a little bit. If you're at all interested in adoption, um, that's a big part of his, his story. Um, so I, I'd urge you just to check that out. But if this is all we had you for, God bless you. Hope you benefit, and I'll hope to see you next week.